There are very uh, few Sundays when we are all focused on the same issue. Most of the time when we come to worship, we bring our own set of circumstances and we hear the word of God in the context of our own individual lives. But today, I think our ears are probably tuned to a larger issue, (laughs) the issue of the welfare and care of our brother Dan Meyer. And it shakes us when the symbol of strength and the one who offers comfort is shaken as well. We have come to count on certain people to be almost above the vicissitudes of life. Dan is the one who offers comfort in time of need, not the one who needs to receive it. He's there in the midst of life's conflicts and traumas, and we've seen him throw himself into those time after time. And so it can be kind of unsettling when the one who leads us is the victim of those traumas. It can rock our world. In moments like these, when life seems to be a bit out of control, we need to remember some of the foundational truths of our faith. What is that rock, as the psalmist says, that is higher than I? Or as Dan put it to me, remember, we follow the master, not the pastor. (laughs) The scriptures are, are full of incidents where people's worlds are upset and they need reassurance of the faithfulness of God in the midst of uncertainty that threatens their quality of life. The disciples of Jesus experienced this in the form of a sudden storm that arose on the Sea of Galilee. And storms are a great metaphor for our lives, as well as, of course, a very recent event that we have all experienced around here. So this morning, I asked us to turn to uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. In fact, I would like you to take your Bibles out of the pews. Open it up to that text, lay it on your lap, and let's stay with this this story of Jesus stilling the storm. And let's read this responsibly, uh, as is our custom. I'll start with verse 35, and then you pick up the even number of verses at verse 36 uh, to the end of the chapter. Mark 4, 35 through 41. Hear the pages still fluttering. (laughs) That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. For Jesus, it had been a very taxing day. You get the sense that he was on the verge of exhaustion and therefore needed a break from the crowd's incessant demands. The crowds had pressed in upon him along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and the community of Capernaum. In fact, the crowds were so pressing, he had to get into a boat that acted like a floating pulpit, and he sat in the stern and he taught the people from that place. 
But to escape the press of the crowds, they decided to cut across diagonally the Sea of Galilee to the, the land of the Gerasenes. It was about a 13-mile boat ride. And this would be the only moment of quiet that Jesus could grab for himself. He was exhausted at the end of this day. And so we read in verses 35 and 36 of our text, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. And as we shall see in a moment, Jesus used this quiet moment in the boat to take a nap, to fall asleep. But as they were at sea, a storm suddenly burst upon them. And this is how it's described in verse 37. A a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, it wasn't uncommon, frankly, for this kind of incident to happen on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, you can imagine, is kind of in a bowl. And think of it as a teacup, but two-thirds full of water. It sits 628 feet below sea level. Surrounding it are mountains with very narrow ravines. Thermals would develop on the Sea of Galilee, which would create a low-pressure zone, and then winds would whistle through those ravines, cold winds. And as they picked up speed through the winds, through the ravines, because the air was compressed, they would hit the thermals, and then you would have a sudden explosion, in a sense, on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, uh, when Matthew describes this, he uses the term seismos to describe what happened. A sea quake, a great shaking of the sea took place. Now, there were a number of veteran seamen in that boat. They were kind of used to this, but maybe they had never seen something quite as violent as this. And as bailing as fast as they could, they could not bail the water out, so they were sincerely frightened as to whether they were going to be going under the water. I think this kind of squall is symbolic of the sudden changes that can threaten our existence. As I said earlier, Pastor Meyer experienced pain in his chest, tingling in his arms, Uh, It wouldn't go away. And and in his fashion, what did he do? Well, he got on the computer and he typed in Google angina. And he read the description of it and found out that if this lasts for 15 minutes, you better go to the emergency at the hospital. (laughs) So they went. These are the storms that blindside us. They're the phone calls that uh, change our world and threaten our quality of life. I received one of those calls on April 30th, 2008, when my urologist called to inform me that I had prostate cancer. My life was suddenly turned upside down. Many of us have experienced the storm of a car accident, the sudden loss of a loved one, someone who says to us, I don't want to be married to you anymore. You go to work and they say, clean out your desk, this is your last day. Seismos. And then the aftershocks come as we take in the implication of what comes next. Our scripture text this morning addresses, I think, the most visceral and primal questions that arise when life turns upside down. Where is God in the sufferings? And what is the purpose of the suffering? Where is God in the sufferings? What's the purpose of it all? And that's the first thing that's addressed here in the text, isn't it? Where is God in the suffering? That's the question that the disciples are asking. 
Verses 37 and 38. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I think the disciples interpreted Jesus being asleep as being indifferent to their peril. In a matter of moments, uh, they could be underwater, flailing away. And what's Jesus doing? He's snoozing through it all. (laughs) And you get the sense that their question really is a mixture of anger and fear. Jesus, do something. Why aren't you in a state of panic like we are? Show some concern. Isn't this our question, too? Lord, are you sleeping through our trauma? Haven't we all experienced something that threatened to swamp us only to be met by the deafening silence of God? Plead as we might for God to show up in a way that we can recognize some sensation of assurance that he is there. And then what? Nothing. C.S. Lewis, the great British writer, was a lifelong bachelor until he fell in love in his late 50s. He married Joy David Gresham, knowing that their life together would probably be short because she had a tumor in her femur. But he took the risk of love. He fell in love like he had never fallen in love before. It met a need that he probably didn't even know he had. God gave them three years together before Joy died. And then after her death, he experienced the desolation of that loss. And he wrote a little book called A Grief Observed. And he describes his sense of the absence of God's presence. He writes this, But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, What do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the other side. And after that, silence. Psalmist raises the same question. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I have to bear in my soul this pain and have sorrow in my heart all day long? I think our greatest fear is the fear of abandonment. We will face a life-threatening illness or some other life-threatening situation, and we will be all alone in that moment. That's our foundational fear in life. My period of uncertainty came from April 30th, from the time of announcing that I had prostate cancer to June 13th when the surgery occurred, and I had fearful moments during that time. May 16th, I wrote this in my journal. The worst time is in the middle of the night when I'm alone with my thoughts. I can imagine the worst all too easily. Another journal entry. Father, I I hear noise in my head and my heart. There's an underlying anxiety about what will be found, what will be next. I find anxiety makes it hard for me to focus. It's very self-focused. It pulls me away from others. 
I want a cocoon. So how does Jesus address these fears that engulf us? What's his response? His first response is, I am there with you in the boat. I am there with you in the boat. Jesus lives in the midst of the peril with his disciples. He has tied his welfare to theirs. If the boat goes under, he too faces the consequences. Jesus is not safely on the shore, unperturbed by their circumstances. What threatened them threatened him. And isn't this the very uniqueness of our Christian faith? It's built upon our understanding of God as incarnate God who comes among us, living out our life, living in our circumstances, living in our flesh. At the very core of our faith is the God of the cross, God bearing all the sin and suffering that uh, has gone wrong with this world. As Os Guinness has written, no other God has wounds. Who could believe in a God who is a celestial being lounging on a deck chair sipping a frosty fruit drink, unconcerned about what's happening in this world? I couldn't. I couldn't believe in that kind of God. And the cross tells us that Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Where is God? Closer than you can imagine. He's in the boat, facing life's threats with you. Jesus himself said, I will never leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He promised the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus with us and in us. Paul said that he had learned the secret of being content in any and all circumstances. And where did he write that from? A prison. Chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard, the Roman elite. And why could Paul say that? Because there was no wall high enough to keep the love of God out of his heart because the Holy Spirit had been poured out into his heart. Always present. And I think quite often the way that God comes to us to demonstrate his love and presence is through his people. One of the very best things we can do for Pastor Meyer is pray for him. Intercede for him. Stand in the gap for him. The prayers of God's people send the presence of God to us. I experienced this in a a quite remarkable way. Following my prostate cancer surgery in 2008 and early 2009, I needed to have follow-up treatment with radiation. 37 treatments just in case the cancer had spread. And I would say to people, pray for me during this time. I, anybody who would res- listen, I would say, pray for me. <laughs> and the first day of my radiation, I was stretched out on that radiation table. They put you in place in a form so that you do not move a hair during that time of radiation. And as I was told to lie still and not move at all for eight minutes, I began to visualize people praying for me in that moment. And frankly, I I got a bit giddy in prayer. And giddiness causes your body to gyrate. And I had to say to myself, calm down. This joy is going to cause you problems. (laughs) I was supposed to stay still, but I sensed the prayers of God's people. 
in that moment. The fear of abandonment and isolation can be addressed directly through the presence of God's Spirit and through the intercessions of God's people. Jesus answers the question, where is God in the storms, in a second way. He says, I am the sovereign one in control of the forces that threaten you. You see, disciples interpreted Jesus being asleep as indifference. Jesus thought it of, I'm under control. I've got this all covered. In fact, we read in verse 39, when Jesus awoke, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, quiet, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. The snarling dog rolled over on its back. The storm obeyed like a compliant child. And we may not even catch the complexity of the miracle that was taking place here because it says the wind ceased and there was great calm. It sounds like a redundancy, but it's not. First of all, the wind ceased. If you've ever been on an ocean cruise and the waters have been choppy, the wind may cease, but do the waters cease to be choppy immediately? No. So Mark is identifying here a compound miracle. The wind ceased, but then immediately... The waters are dead calm and still. Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, captures this witness of the power of Christ in these words. Jesus is demonstrating, I'm not just someone who has power. I am power itself. Anyone and anything in the whole universe that has power has it on loan from me, Jesus is saying. After his resurrection, he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, there's not a single thing that happens to us that is not a part of God's sovereign plan and from which he will not bring good. Even though God may not dramatically and instantaneously address the life-threatening storm that's going on in our life, we can hold on to the beloved promise that Paul articulates. We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But then he concludes the psalm this way. I have trusted your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There's a song that puts it this way. You might want to remember this line. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart. So we move from that uh, first question, where is God in the suffering, to the second one in our story this morning. What's the purpose of this suffering? The seismoses of life are intended to do two things. Increase our faith and increase the size of our God. Increase our faith and increase the size of our God. The first purpose of suffering is to deepen our trust. And so Jesus asked his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I don't know about you, when I first read that, I think, well, the boat's going under. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I might have some concern here this moment. And I'm not sure what the disciples expected when they woke Jesus up and what they thought he might do. 
My guess is they didn't really go all the way to thinking he was going to speak to the wind and calm the sea in the way that he had. But there's sort of an assumption here on Jesus' part. That is, have you caught on to who I am yet? Haven't I revealed enough about myself so far that you know I can handle any situation? I mean, if you were to go back and review what Jesus had revealed himself in the first four chapters of Mark, you see a number of things. He stands before a leper with decaying skin, and it becomes pure, soft, and white because he says so. He acts in the role of God by forgiving the sin of a paralytic. He says, said to them, I am Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> he casts out evil spirits who want to identify him as the Holy One of God. And so there's a little bit of a sense here that, come on, aren't you catching on to who I am at this point? But I think the disciples are like, like us. Every new challenge, we have to renew and learn things over again, don't we? <laughs> These troubles, I think, are designed to strengthen our faith muscles and deepen our confidence in God exclusively. We so easily wander off to place our faith in things that cannot hold us up when life overwhelms. C.S. Lewis says of pain and suffering that it's the megaphone of God. God seems to have to shout at us in our pain to get our attention. And Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, said that when he lost joy, his wife, he realized that his faith was a house of cards. It crumbled. The weight of grief would not be held by the faith that he had. He needed to rebuild his faith on a different foundation. I don't know what it is about us as human beings, but it appears that we rarely grow except through adversity. We only reach deep within ourselves and learn about ourselves and the quality of our faith when we are challenged to go beyond where we have gone before. We don't know what we're made of until the tests come. I watched this week one of our staff members grow. It was a delight to behold. This person was facing a challenging ministry situation that required her to have a confidence and conviction at an entire new level in order to lead the ministry that she was a part of. She found a faith muscle that she didn't even know she had because the adversity had brought it about. Malcolm Muggeridge, a British satirist turned Christian, wrote these words that speak, I think, to our experience. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at times seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has enhanced my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. James, the brother of Jesus, states the same truth more positively and I might say surprisingly when he says these words, count it pure joy, my brethren, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I want to stop after that and say, what did you just say? Count it pure joy? Why? Why would I want to embrace and welcome trials into my life? But then he goes on. 
because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus challenges his followers with this. Do you still have no faith? You could also translate that question, where is your faith? And this leads us to our our last insight of the morning. Where is your faith? What's the object of your faith, Jesus is saying? Where are you putting your trust? And Jesus, of course, is pointing to himself and saying, put your trust in me. He said, quiet, be still. The wind has died down, and it was completely still. And note the response of the disciples. They simply shifted the focus of their fear, didn't they? A few moments before, they were afraid of this water that was swamping the boat. Now what are they afraid of? The one who's in their midst. We read in verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Literally, they feared a great fear. It was repetitious here. Who is this who speaks and nature obeys? God has broken into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, and he is one without analogy for these disciples. The disciples knew powerful and weak men, hostile and gentle men, intellectual and emotional men, visionary and practical men. But who is this? He fits none of our categories. We're standing in the midst of unleashed power. So Jesus says, where do you look? Where is your faith? Sometimes he speaks directly to the storms in our life and takes care of them right away. More often than not, this sovereign one allows the storm to refine us so that he moves in a way that is maybe hidden to our eyes, but we can trust his goodness. The point is, God is God. Or as Elizabeth Elliot put it, Since God is God, I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. So where's God in the storms? He's in your boat. He's right there with you. He's in control of all the forces that ultimately will safely bring us home. He uses our sulfurings like a master sculptor to shape us by using the pain as a chisel to lead us to greater trust and a much bigger view of who he is. Jesus promises that one day it will be normative for him to still all the storms. When he says, quiet, be still, everything in the world We'll be still. But as our communion table reminds us of this morning, the way the ultimate storm is stilled is through the cross. There came a time when he threw himself headlong into the ultimate storm, the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. This is the only storm that could ultimately sink us. This storm was not calmed by, uh, by us was not calmed until he was swept away. When we see him taking on the forces that threaten our eternal separation from God and find its meaning in a place deep within ourselves, we will never be able to say again, God, don't you care?
We certainly await the day when Jesus returns to destroy destruction, break brokenness, and kill death. Yet we have received the down payment that we now celebrate in this meal that we call communion.